Good morning, church. Uh, let's say a quick word of prayer before the preaching. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance that we can come uh, into your house. We thank you for all the uh, festivities this weekend that await us. We pray, Lord, that you would quiet our hearts. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and change our lives. Make us more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Today's sermon is titled Gospel Strength. And it is the third sermon in the series, The Power of the Gospel. Uh, I joked around with some of you saying that this is actually just one long sermon of mine, and I've chopped it up into four parts because nobody wants to hear a two-hour sermon. Uh, In this series, we're exploring the question, does the gospel really change everything? We've already seen the movement of the gospel. The gospel moves from death to life. We see it going from the cross to the resurrection, or on a day like today, we step back and we can see the gospel going from the incarnation to the ascension and Pentecost. Happy birthday, church. The summary of the gospel, I've been using two words, humiliation and exaltation, specifically Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. We have seen this gospel movement provide comfort for the barren woman who is transformed into the fruitful woman. And last week we said that this transformation comes through prayer. Yes, prayer transforms us. And today we will explore the strength of the gospel. Our question is how do we grasp or own the strength of the gospel? And for that we will explore Philippians 2, verses 1 to 13 found on page 980 in the Pew Bible, so I go ahead and invite you to turn there now. Uh, For this series, I have chosen some of my favorite passages, as these are my final sermons, and Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages. Uh, It's one of my favorites because it addresses some of the biggest and most important questions we have as Christians. The first question this passage addresses is, who is Christ? Of course, we can read the Gospels to help us answer that question, and we can read the entire Bible to help us answer that question. But if you really want to understand the core and the essence of Christ, you have to go to the ones and the two. Do you know about the ones and the two? The ones, we have John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, and the two, we have Philippians 2. So of these four, Philippians 2, I think, is the most interesting and important And it's certainly the most debated and misunderstood. Uh, Secondly, not only does this passage talk about Christ, but it also talks about God. To understand the gospel, we must explore the question, who is God? And this passage helps us do that. Third, not only does this passage help us understand Christ and God, but it also helps us understand human beings. What is a human being? being? That is the question of our time. What is a human being? Now, I will speak to all of these questions uh, in today's sermon, but I will not exhaust any of these questions in today's sermon. I know there's a parade tomorrow morning at 11, and I promise to let you out in time for that. And the fourth and final reason that I like this passage, it talks about Christ, God, humanity, but also the gospel. We are familiar with the terms death and resurrection or crucifixion and resurrection, but I've been using the summary words humiliation and exaltation. Those might seem strange, but that is based on Philippians 2. 
Christ humbled himself, his humiliation, and Christ is exalted, his exaltation. So to answer our question about the strength of the gospel, this passage will help us see that strength actually looks more like weakness, at least at first, because after weakness then comes strength. In Philippians 2, we will see that the strength of the gospel comes through submission. We will see that the strength of the gospel comes through humility, and we will see that the strength of the gospel comes through trembling. The strength of the gospel comes through submission, humility, and trembling. So, first of all, the strength of the gospel comes through submission, because submission brings unity, and unity brings strength. Let's read verses 1 to 5 and see how Paul is pleading with the Philippians to submit to one another. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is is yours in Christ Jesus. In verse 1, we see that Paul is setting up the argument for his people to submit to one another in love with the doctrine of God, the Trinity. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is even a speck of encouragement in Christ, then be unified. If there is any comfort in from love, and I think that means the love of God based on 2 Corinthians 13, 14. If there is any comfort from the love of God, if there is just one drop of comfort, then submit to one another and be unified. If there is any participation in the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, any participation at all, any spiritual fellowship, then submit to one another and be in unity. I want to park on this word participation for just a moment. I believe participation is a lost concept in our Christian faith that needs to be retrieved. Many times we think that any participation means full participation. And I do not blame participation trophies, but they might have something to do with it. I don't know. Overall, we think too simplistically. We think that any union or any fellowship with Christ means full union or full fellowship with Christ. If that is true, that any union means full union with Christ, then I'm going to sleep in on Sunday mornings. However, if we grow in the love of God and if we grow in the encouragement of Christ and if we grow in the participation of the Holy Spirit, I do not want the simple participation trophy. I want the gold medal. If we continually achieve greater levels of participation in the Spirit and greater levels of sanctification in Christ, then why would we ever skip out on the things that make us like Christ? Prayer and scripture reading, church and small groups, Christian fellowship or Christian participation. Being a Christian is not simply getting out of hell or even getting to go to heaven. It is participation with the Spirit of God. It is union with God. If there is any participation in the Spirit, 
any love of God and any encouragement of Christ, Paul says in verse 2, have the same mind. Unity. Unity in our thoughts. If we are what we think about, then Paul wants us to be united in our very being. Paul continues to say, have the same love. Once again, unity, not unity in our minds, but unity in our hearts, in our affections, and in our spirits. He says, be of full accord. Have unity in your decisions. And again, be of one mind. The mind is mentioned twice in this verse, and again in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, one mind. Paul wants the Philippians and all Christians to have one mind and one heart. If there is any participation in the Spirit, any love of God and any encouragement from Christ, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. People have said that the devil and the demons are the only ones who get perfect attendance on Sundays. I've never confirmed this with the devil or any demons, but I think there might be some truth to it. Where are the devils in the church, though? Well, James 3, 14 and 15 indicates that things like jealousy, selfish ambition, and pride are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Pride, ambition, conceit, these are the antithesis of the gospel and its strength, yet they are frequently found in the church. There is no strength in pride. There is no strength in conceit. They are earthly and unspiritual. And there is no strength in selfish ambition. It is demonic. Do nothing from selfish ambition, conceit, or pride. Verse 3 continues. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. And in verse 4, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Do you remember the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourselves. To look to their interests, not only your own. And what is love? Well, to love, the classical definition is to will the good of another. To use your strength and your power or your gifts for the good of someone else. To take all of your strengths and to put them under someone else. And this is the definition of submission. To put yourself under someone else. If we are all submitted to one another in love, imagine the unity, the bond, and the spirituality and the strength that we would have. Paul teaches us that gospel strength comes through submission. But through the weakness of submission we find strength in unity. Paul also teaches us that gospel strength comes through humility, but humility that leads to exaltation. Now, before we read verses 6 to 11, I want you to notice the very end of verse 5. Paul is telling us to have the mind of Christ, and he's about to tell us what the mind of Christ looks like. So let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 in the ESV reads, Who, though he, meaning Christ, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One of the most important questions about Jesus Christ came up in the 5th century. That question was, how many natures does Jesus Christ have? Does Jesus Christ have a human nature? Does he have a divine nature? Does he have both? Or does he have some type of hybrid, maybe like a mule or the Liger from Napoleon Dynamite? A specific aspect of that question came up later on, though, and that was, how many minds does Christ have? Does he only have a divine mind? Does he only have a human mind? Is it something half-half, or does he have both? Maybe you're thinking, does this even matter? Does this matter for the gospel? The answer is yes. It matters for us and for our salvation. For our salvation, Christ must have a divine nature and a divine mind. If he is not divine, then he's not any more powerful than we are. We need a divine nature and a divine mind to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And for our salvation, Christ must have a human nature and a human mind. Common, a common saying in the early church is that Christ cannot redeem what he has not assumed. If Christ does not assume a human nature, he cannot redeem a human nature. And if he does not assume a human mind, he cannot redeem a human mind. But Paul is telling us we have the mind of Christ. We know that Christ redeems our fallen natures. We know that he redeems our fallen minds. Therefore, Christ must have a human mind. So Jesus has a human mind because he is truly human. And Jesus has a divine mind because he is truly divine. The human and the divine united in one person. We call this the hypostatic union. The divine person taking on flesh, including the mind for us and for our salvation. But this raises another Christological question, which means a question about Christ. And it bleeds into a theological question, which means a question about God. How do these two minds of the one person of Jesus Christ relate to one another? Are they in opposition like a schizophrenic? Or are they somehow in unity? And how do these two minds relate to humility? Because Jesus humbled himself to the cross. If you look at verse 6, the ESV opens by saying, though he. The picture is a contrast. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count himself equal to God. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death on the cross. Now, that though he does not exist in the Greek, but the translators put it there to uh, make an argument implying that this is showing a great contrast. Yes, Jesus is equal with God, but he was willing to die on the cross. We see the greatness of his humility in the opposition of these two. I lived in Thailand several years ago, almost a decade now, under the previous monarch, uh, everybody loved this particular king. Everybody that I knew. I never heard an ill word spoken about him by a Thai person. 
but my tie is not that good, so take it for what it's worth. I asked one of my friends who was my age at the time, and I, I, I said, why do you, you know, like the king? In America, we complain about our politicians. Why do you like your king? And his response was, well, this particular king, he is so wealthy and wise and honorable. He's the perfect king, yet he associates with the poor. He visits them in their villages, and we've even seen pictures of him sitting on the dirt with those that are poor and suffering. The nation loved this king because of his greatness, but also because of his humility. My response was, well, wait until you meet King Jesus. Because though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself to the cross with sinners. Though he shows the contrast, but it does not capture everything that this passage means. I prefer the King James's version of this verse. It does not have though he, it leaves it out. It just says Jesus Christ who, being in the form of God. Jesus, who being in the form of God, humbled himself. So can we use another word instead of although or though? Yes, we can, but I'm going to make you think before we get there. To see what is going on in the humility of Christ, we must ask ourselves the question, how shall we think of God? The divine nature and the divine mind of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema. It is one of the central verses of the Christian faith. It says, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Yahweh is one. Yes, one refers to a number. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There is only one. But this one means something more than just a simple number. One is the perfect number. One is incomparable. We all want the first place trophy because number one beats all the others. One is the foundation for all other numbers. One is not dependent on any other number, but all numbers are dependent on one. There is no number two without number one. There is no number three without first there being a number one, and so on. One is complete and whole. It is not a fraction. It is not an abstraction like pi. In the same way, God is one. God is incomparable to anything else. God is foundational for all things and beings. God is complete and whole. God does not have parts. God is not one part grace, one part mercy, one part love, and a a dash of wrath mixed in there. No, God is grace. God is mercy. God is love, and God is wrath. God is one, and he cannot be divided. But he is also infinite. Here's a big word. He is uncircumscribable. There is nothing that can surround him and encircle him. Because if anything could surround him, then that something would be greater than he is. But God is greater than all, thus he is infinite. And that means that God is infinite mercy, and he is infinite love, he is undividable. God is one. God is the greatest being that can possibly be imagined, that can possibly exist. And this God, he is also good. The greatest being in existence is pure, infinite goodness. 
There is no opposite to goodness. Evil is a parasite of the good. It is not a rival, and it certainly does not make God fear. God is infinitely good. God is infinite in his excellence, and he is infinite in his virtue. In fact, all virtues depend upon God the same way that all numbers are dependent on the number one. All excellence, all goodness, and all virtues participate in God. And what are the virtues? Things like love, justice, patience, kindness, and even humility. Humility comes from God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father who is unchangeable. Humility is good, thus it comes from God. James 4.6, the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5 says, clothe yourselves in humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 25.2, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing or to conceal his word, to conceal a sign of humility. So does humility participate in God? We must answer yes. So then how can we read verses 6 through 11? Not only can we say, though Christ was in the form of God, but we can also say, because Christ was in the form of God. Because Christ was in the form of God, he did not count himself equal to God. Because Christ was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Because he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Thomas Torrance was a Scottish uh, theologian who passed away just a few decades ago. And as a young man, Tom Torrance was a chaplain in World War II. One day on the battlefield, he approached a young man who was dying, and this young man in fear asked Torrance a question, and it was a question that changed Torrance's life and his whole ministry and life as a theologian. The question, is God really like Jesus? Is God really like Jesus? Torrance says that this question, it captures the deepest cry of the human heart, Is the God that we will meet on the other side of death the same God that came to earth as a lowly babe? Is the God that we're going to meet on the other side of death the same God who laid down his life for the sheep, who forgave the people that were killing him? Torrance assured this dying man with these words, God is indeed like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. In John 14, Jesus tells Philip the exact same thing. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. Because Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even on the cross. Jesus took a human mind unto himself to redeem the human mind. Through his humility, Jesus conformed his human mind to the image of the divine mind. 
In Genesis 1.27, we see the, the triune God speaking these words. Let us make man in our image. Or if you prefer, let us make a human being in our image. The man there is not referring to Adam, but humanity in general. Last week I said that this statement is true in two ways. First, all people are made in the image of God by their nature. Factors like their intellect, their freedom, and their creativity show they're in the image of God. But I said, secondly, that we are more like God, and we can become more like God when we live like God, in, in faithfulness, and grace, and love, and humility. And this week, I will give you what I believe is the ultimate truth to this statement. Let us make man in our image. I believe it is a statement pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect human being, and he is the ultimate man. In the second century, there was a theologian named Irenaeus, and he said that the first Adam was based on the future Jesus Christ, not the other way around. Jesus is not a stipulation trying to reverse Adam. Adam is pointing to Christ. Jesus Christ is the true human being. Even before Irenaeus and before the birth of Christ, there were Jewish theologians that said that this man or this human being from Genesis 1.27 was referring to the Logos, the word of God. And how does John's gospel introduce Jesus to us? The Logos became flesh. The word of God became a human being. How does John's gospel present Jesus at the crucifixion? Ek homo. Behold the man. Behold the human being. Behold the king of the Jews. And which is the gospel that never records Jesus' transfiguration? John's gospel. Because John always depicts Jesus as the transfigured human being. What is my anthropology? What is my question to what does it mean to be a human being? Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who got humanity right. So on the one hand, we can say that Jesus Christ on the cross, he was at his lowest and most humble point. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ on the cross, he was transforming humanity. And he was transforming the human mind. He transformed his flesh into the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the image or icon of God. No one sees the face of God and lives, and nothing can circumscribe God except the flesh of Jesus Christ, the flesh that he deified to redeem us and to redeem creation. What is the gospel? The divine person of the Logos, taking on human flesh, not to bring God down, but to bring humanity up. Through Christ's humility, we have access to all of God's virtues. His love and justice are one. His patience and kindness are one. All of his goodness, all of his completeness, all of his wholeness, we have access to and we participate in God for eternity and for infinity. Through Christ's humility, we have access to his glory, to his exaltation. So you have to ask yourself the question, have I humbled myself before God through repentance? Have I humbled myself as an individual? Have we humbled ourselves as a community? 
Have we humbled ourselves as a church or even as a nation? For the gospel to really change anything, humility is necessary. Why? What Christ did not assume, he cannot save. And Jesus Christ was never proud in his humanity or in his divinity. Therefore, walk humbly with your God, and you will find strength in your weakness. Paul teaches us that gospel strength comes through submission, leading to unity. And he teaches us that gospel strength comes through humility, leading to exaltation. And finally, he teaches us that gospel strength comes through trembling, because that trembling leads to pleasure. Look at verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. It does not mean like going to the gym and watching the prices right while you play around on the elliptical for 15 or 20 minutes. This idea of work out, it means to accomplish something thoroughly. It would be like going to the gym for hours at a time. Kobe Bryant is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. It's unfortunate he played for the Lakers. Chris Bosh is also a great player that also played with Kobe on the national team. And one of the first mornings they were on this national team together, all the players got together at the, uh, the gym for breakfast. Uh, in the breakfast room, all of the players looked like they had just rolled out of bed. But Kobe walked into the breakfast room dripping in sweat. He had just finished a two-hour practice before the rest of the best basketball players in America even got out of bed. This was just the first of his four workouts for the day. Work out your own salvation. Accomplish it thoroughly, like Kobe Bryant. The Christian life is not a get-out-of-hell-free card, and it is not a theme park ticket or a ticket to a theme park in the sky. The Christian life is a contest, so work out like you want that first-place trophy because that first-place trophy is a participation trophy, a participation in the divine nature. Work out with fear and trembling. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has a book by this title, Fear and Trembling. In this work, he contemplates the life of Abraham, and specifically the moment when Abraham woke up early to sacrifice his son Isaac. Kierkegaard thinks that Abraham woke up early because of anxiety. Three times in the life of Abraham, Scripture tells us that Abraham woke up early with, with this anxiety, if, if Kierkegaard's right, and I, I think he is. The first time is when he woke up, he, he had to send his son Ishmael out into the desert, and he had this anxiety over it. The final instance is when Abraham woke up early in the morning to go and bury his wife, Sarah. In the middle of these two instances, though, Abraham had to take his son Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him. Abraham woke up early with anxiety. Abraham was in fear and trembling why he worked out the salvation that God had in store. Without the fear and trembling of Abraham, 
he never would have had the pleasure of discovering the ram that was in the bushes. And without our own workout, without our own fear and trembling and wrestling with salvation, perhaps we will never see the pleasure of the ram in the bushes. And what is this ram in the bushes pointing us to? The same thing Adam is pointing us to. The man, Jesus Christ. In John 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see me. And of course, that ram was pointing to Christ. Without the workout, we will never experience the pleasure that God has in store for us. But take heart, because verse 13 says, It is God who works in you for his good pleasure. And if it is God's good pleasure, it means that it is an infinite pleasure, and he is inviting you in. We have all experienced the pleasure at the end of a hard day's work. The pleasure that comes from throwing the perfect party or or getting the deal you've been working on so hard. It's the pleasure that comes from winning a contest or perhaps the pleasure that comes from seeing new life. And one day we will experience the fullness of this pleasure in our salvation. The pleasure of being a human being. The pleasure of beholding the human being, the King, Jesus Christ, ek homo, behold the man, behold the king. And where should we work out this pleasure? Where is our gymnasium? Well, that will be our discussion for next week as we conclude this series. But we have seen by examining Philippians 2, we have seen the glory of the gospel strength is concealed in the foolishness of gospel weakness. To obtain gospel strength, we must be submissive, because submission will lead to unity. To obtain gospel strength, we must be humble, because humility will lead to exaltation. And to obtain gospel strength, we must be trembling, because trembling before God will lead to the pleasure of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together. We thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we can have strength in weakness. We thank you that we can find uh, union with God and participation in God with Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that when we look at the face of Jesus Christ, we see the Father. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.